You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 says this. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let me uh, offer a quick request. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to open your word together in these unique circumstances. Me on this side of a camera and them on the other side of their TVs. Uh, Father, it, uh, it blows me away continually that you would use uh, preaching of your word in this way to encourage and to strengthen uh, your sheep. And so, Father, uh, I am trusting you to do that and more again. I pray, Father, that you would fill us this morning with your presence, um, that you would help our minds to grow in our understanding of you, that you would help our hearts to be filled with the love of your son, Jesus, and that you would help us to be transformed into the righteous image of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do all of that and then some, the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would help us tremendously this morning as I preach and as others listen. Lord, we trust you to do this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> and as I studied this uh, passage uh, this last week, uh, I was struck with the um, thought um, of the circumstances of the text. Uh, circumstances have a uh, kind of a really funny way of of bringing out the worst in us. Um, for instance, when when my circumstances uh, are not very difficult, when things are kind of going easy, uh, it can be easy for me in those moments to fall into what I would probably call spiritual laziness or spiritual apathy, or um, I take it a step further, spiritual pride. Um, and, and in those moments, what I'm doing is I'm kind of giving myself a pat on the back. Now, I, I don't know if any of us do this, um, you know, cognitively like, oh, good job. You did a great job today. But I, I, there is a, a, a way in which we do that, probably subversively, um, where we just kind of fall into this spiritual laziness, spiritual pride, patting ourselves on the back for a job well done. Th things are going well. I must have done a good job, right? I must have performed well. So God is therefore happy with me pleased with me, so on and so forth. Uh, alternatively, too, uh, you know, when, when, when things are hard to bear, when the circumstances are extremely difficult, um, I can still fall into spiritual laziness, spiritual apathy, uh, spiritual pride. And it's the kind of the other end of the spectrum. Um, in, in, in that case, I, I'm just beating myself up for my failures. Both, um, both the arrogance on the one hand and the insecurity on the other are both forms of spiritual laziness, spiritual apathy, spiritual pride. And circumstances 
whether good or bad, have a way of bringing both of those results out um, in me. Now, on the other hand, uh, there is a way in which circumstances of our lives can bring out not just all the ugly things I just listed, but they can also bring out some good things, so, so, some, some, some good godly things in us, okay? So think in that category with me for a minute. When, when my circumstances aren't very difficult, um, I, I can thrive in my relationship with my Father in heaven as I recognize in those moments that he and only he alone is responsible for my circumstances. And that this momentary reprieve, right, if it's going well, this reprieve from any suffering or hardship, that that circumstance is actually a gift from my loving Father in heaven to, to kind of help me catch my breath um, in, in between the innings of this game that we call life. So that's, that's one way of looking at it, right? When, when the circumstances are hard and good things come out. Alternatively, um, another way of looking at this is, is when the circumstances are very difficult to bear. Uh, in those moments, I can also find myself thriving in my relationship with the Lord. In those moments, as I'm thriving, what's happening is I'm recognizing, again, kind of same foundation that God and God alone in his sovereignty is responsible for my circumstances and that these uh, light and momentary afflictions, these are, are a gift from my Father still. And, and that gift of hardship and difficulty in my life, whether I brought them on through my own sin or whether it was someone else's sin against me, ultimately God is sovereign over those things. And they are a gift still that are meant to shape and mold the desires of my heart. See, at the end of the day, whether the circumstances of my life are easy or hard, those circumstances are meant to reveal things inside of me. They're meant to correct me. They're meant to shape the desires of my heart. I've often said that the heart is always the heart of the issue. Of the reason that my reactions speak louder than my actions or my words is because my reactions come from deep within my heart. They, they reveal what's truly happening in my heart. Most scholars uh, would agree that the heart uh, is a very scary place to travel around in. It's a very scary place to travel around in because the heart is absolutely unpredictable. The mind. The mind is a much easier place to travel around in because the mind can be mapped out. It can be trained to think certain ways. Whereas the heart, now the heart has hidden agendas. The heart has broken places inside of it. The, the heart has these dark little rooms that are still in need of transformation. I could, I could take you to many passages of scripture that would help to underscore this for the sake of time i think i'll just leave it that way the heart is a scary place to travel around in 
And this is why it's often easier uh, for me to talk about, you know, the, the, the big bad old world out there. Because I can think about that. Um, it's easier for me to talk about those foolish pagans, those foolish people uh, in some other state or, or across the street. Um, easier for me to maybe talk about the foolishness of my children or talk about the foolishness of uh, my friends or, or my family. Easier for me to talk about that while only uh, giving this very uh, brief and veiled glance at the condition of my own heart and soul. I must constantly, constantly be reminded that to be consumed with they and them out there is to be negligent with the important things that are going on deep down inside of my heart. My heart is simply the heart of the issue when it comes to the circumstances of this life that squeeze me for a reaction. When my reactions, think about this, when my reactions are laced with self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreement and division, then what do I need to do? I need to return to the rocky terrain of my heart to invite the Spirit of God to reveal and to correct and to shape my heart's desires. Uh, oftentimes, I get sidetracked and I begin to believe that all of those things, the self-centeredness, the pride, the, the complaining, the, the arguing, the disagreement, the division, all those things are, are actually a result of something happening out here across the state, across the street, with my children, with my friends. I often believe that all these negative things in my life are there because of all these pressures and circumstances that are happening. But the reality is that if the heart is the heart of the issue, then when those things begin to bubble up in my life, the pride, the self-centeredness, the complaining, the arguing, the disagreements, the divisiveness, when those things begin to bubble up from inside, I instinctively must be reminded that there is something much deeper going on. This fruit that I see in my life has a root deep down inside of my heart. And the dark places that I would have to go to, the rocky terrain that I would have to travel through is a scary place. And it's a scary place for all of us. The reality is that when I do that work inside of my heart, when, when, I, when I go there, I find that there are certain desires that are probably common to all of us the desires for comfort I want to be comfortable and I feel uncomfortable right now a desire for control I don't know where things are headed it's hard to plan for the for things because things keep changing day in and day out there's a desire for control underneath of that that leads to the frustration the complaining the arguing Maybe it's that I desire to have power. 
it, it's a step above control, right? A desire to have, I feel powerless. I feel helpless. And when I feel helpless and powerless, what that uh, needs to tell me is that deep down inside of my heart, I'm seeking for power. And the crazy thing is when these desires are out of control, uh, we will do a lot of things to get them. So there's comfort, there's control, there's power. How about acceptance? When, 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 when I feel alone, when, when I feel like someone's going to reject me, um, that is flowing out of a deep desire to be liked, to be accepted by others around me. In these moments, um, when, I, when I take a deep, hard look at my heart and I find that these desires for comfort and control, power and acceptance are running rampant up and down the hallways of my heart, it's almost like in those moments... I need a like a defibrillator, right? A defibrillator to jumpstart my heart. I, I need a a shock to the system to to kill my out of control desires. I, I don't need to take this thinly veiled brief glance at what's happening deep down inside of my heart. I need to do some deep surgery. And really, it's as though the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, in this verse, knew, these verses, knew, knew that I and you and the Philippian church, the Philippian believers, that we need this kind of shock therapy, right? Uh, we, we are in constant need of a shock to our systems if we're going to wage war together against the sin infection that seeks to destroy our souls. Paul's prayer here in verses 9 through 11, it's like a shock to the systematic sin that infects every one of us. So look at these verses again with me. Verses 9 through 11, Paul says, It is my prayer. Hear these words um, with the backdrop of the introduction you just heard. Hear Paul praying this way. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve, prove, give evidence to what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, as you read this, as you process this, you have to remember that Paul is writing this letter, the, the, the letter to the Philippian church. It's a love letter that we're taking a peek at. He's writing this love letter to Philippian believers like Lydia, uh, the wealthy saleswoman, like uh, the unnamed ex-slave, ex-demon-possessed girl, uh, like the Roman prison guard. Uh, the Philippian church was a very diverse family that Paul is writing to, shepherding. But despite its diversity, the, the, the Philippian church uh, still struggled with very common sins. or common sins that are common to all of us. Regardless of whether you've walked with Jesus not yet, 
walked with Jesus for three minutes or walked with Jesus for 35 years. These sins are still common to us. We still struggle with them because we're not in heaven yet. We're not in perfection yet. These sins of self-centeredness and, and pride and, and complaining and, and arguing and disagreement and division. These were common sin infections that threatened to destroy the, not only the church's fellowship, but also the church's testimony, their picture, their image in their community of who God is. These, this sin infection threatened to destroy both of those. And the remedy for the infection, according to Paul, his instructions throughout the book is to put on the mind of Christ, to think the thoughts of Christ, to work out your own salvation in Christ, meaning to focus on you, to stand firm in the joy of Christ, to not backslide, but to take a stand in the joy of Christ. In a nutshell, the Apostle Paul has instructed the Philippian believers all throughout this letter to keep the crucified, risen, and returning Christ at the center of everything, right? And his instructions, um, his instructions aren't given without personally modeling what it actually looks like to keep Christ at the center, Listen to this. Think about this. Instructions that are not backed up by personal example, they're inauthentic at best. And they're legalistic and moralistic at worst. So the Apostle Paul, who famously said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ in the book of Corinthians, he gives his listeners uh, both the instructions, and a living example to model their lives after. See, Paul's circumstances, they're dismal at best. Uh, he's chained to a Roman guard in a prison cell for preaching the gospel. And he's there because the people who should have been his friends had become his enemies. Paul knows that God has a higher purpose for his afflictions. So, what does Paul do? Paul seeks to instruct and to model what it looks like to have a heart that is wholly or completely devoted to the Lord. We talked about this last week. A heart that is full of gratitude. A heart that is full of joyful prayer. Full of a sense of belonging. Full of a sense of assurance. Full of fellowship full of affection you only need to examine verses three through eight of this chapter from last week to see in paul's words the example the the model of christ-centered reaction in the midst of dire circumstances flown out of that example of christ-centered reaction in the midst of dire circumstances are the words of Paul's pastoral prayer. That's really these verses we've read today, verses 9 through 11. This is really Paul's pastoral prayer for his friends in Philippi. 
Now, his prayer, when you think about these three verses that we've read, this prayer might have come as a shock to his friends. That might come as a shock to you that I would say it would be a shock to his friends. I want you to put yourself in, in the shoes of Paul's friends in Philippi for a moment, recognizing that we, we, we've already done some work. We kind of know what the major issues, the sin infections are in the church at Philippi, okay? So put yourself in those shoes. If, you're, if, if, if it's hard for you to admit that you might already be there anyways, right? Just put yourself in these shoes when you're thinking about it. If I put myself in their shoes, if I'm understanding that the Philippian church was rife with self-centeredness, it's all about me, right? Uh, pride, which is either on the one uh, end of the spectrum, it's pure arrogance, or, or on the other end of the spectrum for pride, it's, it's just flat-out insecurity. Um, so self-centeredness or pride, I don't know which one that might be for you. Complaining right? They're complainers. That's what they're being known for. Arguing, lots and lots of arguing. Disagreements. They were known for the fact that they disagreed with one another. This was, this is what this church was known for. Disagreeing with each other and everyone else around them. Probably my loose paraphrase. And then finally division. There was division and there was factions in the church. So if I put myself in those shoes, if I just try to, if I try to put myself in that and try to see where I fit, which ones of these sin infections I fit in, then it's not a far stretch to say that when I get this letter and I hear Paul praying for me this way, that it probably would have come as a shock to the systematic sin uh, that had infected my heart, right? I don't know if you're tracking with me, but think about it. Paul's prayer is simple. He prays that the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ would grow in his friends. Why does he pray for this? Right? If I'm, if I, if I'm in their shoes, I'm wondering that. Why does he pray for this? Let me give you the answer. He prays for this because Paul knows that if their hearts are filled with Christ-centered love, if they're filled with Christ-centered knowledge, if they're filled with Christ-centered discernment, then the character of their lives, the reputation of their lives, it will prove or will give evidence to what is most excellent and pure and blameless. And the question is like, how's all that going to happen? How are they going to get filled? How are they going to somehow give that kind of evidence? How are they going to become full to overflowing with Christ-like love and Christ-like knowledge and Christ-like discernment? How are they going to become transformed from self-centered, egotistical, prideful, complaining, whispering in the background about the, all the things that they don't like, argumentative, just trying to find new ways to argue with everyone around them, disagreeing with everything they read and see, divisive against everything how are they going to be transformed from that kind of a people into the kind of people who are characterized by excellence and purity and blamelessness and the answer 
is that this kind of transformation is going to take place as they receive the shock therapy of the gospel. Just got to remember, these folks in Philippi, think about them once again, put yourself in their shoes. These folks at Philippi, they had been believers for maybe 12 years or more. I don't know how many of you on the other side of this uh, camera have any kids that are 12 years old. Let's think about that for a minute, how interesting it is to raise children at the age of 12, how much they think they know. The self-centeredness, the pride, the complaining, the argument, you following me? These Philippians had been believers for maybe 12 years. If they were truly infected with this kind of sin infection, self-centeredness, pride, complaining, arguing, disagreements, division, then how do you think they would react to hearing Paul's prayer for them. I can just hear the reaction of my own soul if I put myself in those shoes, if I'm caught up in the chains of this kind of sin infection. And all you got to do is have one of them. I have one day where I'm self-centered. I think of my reaction. One day where I'm full of my own pride and I think of my reaction here. One day where all I can do is complain about everything because life is so terrible and the circumstances are so hard. I just pick one. My reaction at first would probably be full of the infectious pus of my heart and soul. Why would Paul pray for me this way? What, what gives him the right to pray for me this way? I don't, I don't need him to point out my lack or my sin. He can't see into my heart. Only God can judge me. I mean, who does he think he is anyways? To characterize me as someone who needs to love more. Like Paul doesn't see my day-to-day -day activities. He's locked up over there in a jail cell. Got a list of people that would stick up for me and explain just how I've loved people so well. How I've grown in my knowledge of God. I read more than enough. How I often practice discernment. How the external things in my life are excellent and pure and blameless. So this is the heart reaction of a person that lives in the bondage of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreeing and divisiveness. I imagine you might connect with it. I know it all too well because I travel down those roads sometimes what seems like on a daily basis. Underneath all that junk lies a heart that is full of corruption. Underneath all that junk lies a heart that is constantly raging out of control with these very simple desires. The desire for comfort, the desire for control, the desire for power, the desire for acceptance. And the only remedy for this sin sickness deep down inside of my soul is to reapply the gospel like a healing balm. You see, the gospel really is like shock therapy for sin-infected hearts. 
The first thing that I need is what Paul prays for. I need the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ. Think about that. I need the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ. Let me bounce over to Ephesians real quickly. If you look in Ephesians chapter 3, you see Paul praying for a different church. He's praying for the Ephesian church. Listen to what he prays for in this regard. I need the love, the knowledge, the discernment of Christ, right? Listen to these words. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, occupy, take up space in, through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, discern, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. This is the all-surpassing picture of the love of Christ. It's boundless, it's endless. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, look at what he finally says here at the end of his prayer for the, the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Back to Philippians. I need the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ. Here's the reality. Loving the unlovable is what Jesus does best. Loving the unlovable is what Jesus does best. The problem for people that are full of self-centeredness and pride is that they think that there's no reason that somebody couldn't love them. Loving the unlovable is what Jesus does best. You and I are, are typically not that lovable. The other side of that is this, knowledge uh, in and of itself, knowledge um, puffs me up. But when I remember that Jesus knows every deep, dark, uh, dirty secret, dirty secret, dir dirty place inside of my heart, he knows that. that. That's the kind of knowledge he has, and yet he still loves me completely. I'm set free. When I ponder that, when I think about that, when my heart begins to consume that, I get set free from my self-centered need to complain. Set free from my need to argue or disagree or cause division. See, I have to constantly remind myself that Jesus loves me at my worst. He doesn't love me anymore when I'm at my best. Because his love is not conditional upon my performance. Therefore, um, because of that kind of love, filling the dirty places of my heart, the broken places of my heart, I can, I can rightly learn to love others when they are at their worst too. I can, I can rightly learn to be compassionate with others when they're at their worst. See, I need the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ. Second thing I need that Paul prays for is the excellence, the purity, and the blamelessness of Christ. I need this. 
You see, Jesus uh, walked this sin-infected earth in complete sinlessness, right? Uh, therefore, he was perfectly pure, perfectly blameless. His, his character was without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Now, my life and your life, uh, they're never going to be completely free of the spots and the, the wrinkles and, and the blemishes of sin, this side of heaven. But this truth, when I think about this truth, that Jesus is perfect. This truth that I'm never going to be perfect this side of heaven. It doesn't give me an excuse to walk in sin, to attempt to cover my sin with my words, or to attempt to downplay my sin with excuses, or to dismiss my sin by blaming others. I have no excuse to do that. I have to constantly remind myself that Jesus has taken my sin upon himself at the cross where he was beaten and bloodied and murdered. <clears throat> and in so doing, as he did, as he took all of my sin, he became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. So it's a transfer. His perfectly full bank account of righteousness. He emptied that and gave that to my bankrupt heart. And he took all the nasty stuff out of my heart and put that in his bank account as he died on that cross. That's the whole idea of what it means to look to purity and excellence and blamelessness. He put my sin on himself at the cross and he gave me his excellence. He gave me his purity. He gave me his blamelessness, just like a new set of clothes. So that's something that I need. I need to be reminded. My heart needs to be reminded of the excellence and the purity and the blamelessness of Christ. Oftentimes we want to moralize these passages. Um, but the reality is that when you begin to think about morality more than you think about transformation, you lose everything. Because transformation leads to godly morality. It's easier to think about morality, my performance, what I do, more than who I am and who I'm becoming. And that's, I think, where Paul is at. Third thing I see here is that I need the righteousness of the glory of Christ. I need the righteousness of the glory of Christ. And this last point, it really flows out of the previous one, right? A righteousness is basically like holiness, okay? Now, oftentimes, we Christians, uh, we stand accused of self-righteousness, of, of having a holier-than-thou kind of an attitude. And oftentimes, I'm sad to say, um, I know at least for me, and others that I know who would join me in confessing this, oftentimes those accusations of us are actually true. It's not too hard to imagine that these accusations were probably true of the Philippian church, right? Uh, they were becoming known for their self-centeredness, their pride, their complaining, their arguing, their disagreements, and their division. And a quick glance at the social media posts of professing Christians today, a, a listening ear, to the prayers of the righteous for the unrighteous. 
a long pause, listening to the reactions of my own heart to the current circumstances that we are living in, proves that we really are no different than the Philippian believers. We have a lot in common with them, I think. At least I know I do. To be full of the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and to the praise of God, as Paul says here, is really to listen to the command of God where he says, be holy as I am holy. You could say, righteous as I am righteous. Oh, you listen to that command. Ponder that command. It's an impossible command to obey. Possible. We cannot perform works of righteousness to build up our righteousness. When you think about the paradox here, it's, it's, a, it's a humiliating, pride-murdering principle to understand. And the only way to produce works of righteousness is to be filled with the presence of righteousness. The only way to be filled with the presence of righteousness is to spend time in the presence of my heavenly Father, who is righteous, confessing my sin and hearing him say once more, over and over again, that I am his Son, I'm deeply loved, perfectly acceptable, no longer a slave, no longer condemned, completely redeemed, priceless in his sight because of the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. I ended my sermon last week with a love letter from Jesus to me that I hoped would benefit you. When was the last time you heard Jesus speak to you that way? When Paul prays that the Philippians would be transformed into people who are filled with Christ-like love and knowledge and discernment, that they would be transformed into people who have character that is full of excellence and purity and blamelessness by the power of the fruit of Christ's gift of righteousness. What he's simply praying is that the Philippians, and then that I, and then that you, would keep Christ at the center of everything. So we oftentimes make these really big mistakes as we live out the Christian life. We make our circumstances the center of everything. We arrive at the scriptures and ask God to fix our circumstances. We make world events the center of everything we go to the word for peace. Not, not at all totally bad. We make political change the center of everything. We make the problems in our families the center of everything. And, and then we kind of get a little bit of a gospel-centered language and we begin to say, I'm going to be gospel-centered now. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that uh, uh, a gospel-centeredness simply means that Christ is at the center of everything. Starting with me. See, if Christ crucified 
and risen and returning is at the center of my heart and mind, then what's going to happen? The love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ is going to overflow in and then out, in and through me. My character is going to be formed, transformed into the excellent and pure and blameless image of Christ. The, the, the fruit of the imputed, which means imparted, given, gifted. The fruit of the imputed righteousness of Christ is going to be produced in me to the glory of God the Father, to the glory and the praise of God the Father. See, self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and division with their counterpart desires underneath for comfort and for control and for power and for acceptance. All of that junk, it's called sin, it has a place where it goes to die. And they go to die at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb in the light of the promise of heaven. So my final words to you today, as you hear this, is what is your reaction? How are you reacting to the circumstances that you currently find yourself in? How are you reacting to this sermon right now? Where are you aware of the presence of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and divisiveness in your heart. Quit skirting around the issues. Quit hiding from them. Start facing them head on. In what ways are the desires for control, comfort and power and acceptance running roughshod in your heart? Man, take these questions and list them out for yourself day by day this week and let the Holy Spirit spend some time with you on them and be honest about them. Where do you need to lay hold of the love and the knowledge and the discernment of Christ again? You think about this in your interactions with your family, in your interactions with your friends and your co-workers and your enemies. Where do you need help walking in excellence where do you need help walking in purity walking in blamelessness in your management of wealth in your management of your time stewardship of your time investment in relationships sacrificing of your resources protection of your eyes and ears where do you need the shock therapy of the gospel of Jesus Christ's righteousness given to you and your filthiness taken by him. So as I said at the beginning of this message, uh, circumstances have a really funny way of exposing uh, both the ugliness of our hearts as well as shaping and transforming our desires into a reflection of Christ's likeness that is full of godly love and godly knowledge and godly discernment and godly excellence and godly purity and godly blamelessness and righteousness the gospel has a way of doing this work so that we might live lives that glorify and praise our god so you see you and i we don't have to live in the shackles of our self-centeredness or our pride or our complaining, or our arguing, or our disagreements, or our divisions any longer. 
the truth of Christ crucified and risen and returning. That is the shock therapy that our hearts need today and every day. Our Father loves you completely. He loves you completely and His Spirit is absolutely available to you to convict you of your sin and then to turn around and apply the healing balm of the gospel to your sin-tortured heart. This is why Paul prays this prayer for the Philippians. He could have come right out of the gate and said, Hey, I'm praying that you stop being so self-centered, that you stop being so prideful, that you stop being so argumentative, and you stop being such a complainer. I mean, isn't that the way we usually pray? Paul doesn't pray that way. He prays this way. And it's the way I want to pray for us as we close. Father, Father, please fill us with your love. Please help us to love the most unlovable in our lives, just as you have loved us. Pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, that you would help us to discern where we are broken. Help us to discern where we are in need of your help. Father, please come again by the power of your Spirit. (coughs) Wash us clean from our sin and our rebellion. By the power of your Spirit, Father, through the the preaching of your Word, Father, today, I pray pray that you would reveal to us where we've been caught up in these deceptive uh, little traps of self-centeredness and pride, complaining and arguing and disagreements and divisiveness. Father, help us to live lives that, that prove, that give evidence to what is most excellent and pure so that we may be a reflection of the blameless image of your Son, Jesus. <coughs> Father, please apply again to our hearts this morning the humiliating and humbling fruit of your righteousness over our filthy, sin-infected hearts again. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you would send your one and only son to die a criminal's death for us so that we may become sons and daughters in your family. Thank you for never leaving us alone in the midst of our self-inflicted, sin-infected circumstances. We love you, Lord. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.